0: You know, one of the things, as we kind of talked about before starting this, uh, this podcast, Nadia, is, you know, your kind of venture into entrepreneurship. Um, I know that, you know, interestingly enough, you studied at Wilfrid Laurier. You then transitioned into Harvard. So I kind of wanted to talk to you about bridging, you know, your academic background uh, and then venturing into entrepreneurship. Was it always something you wanted to do or was it something you later kind of figured that, you know what, this is, this is my DNA and I kind of have to, you know, have to tackle it?
1: You know, I, I think I, I just sort of fell into it. I was speaking to my mom a couple months back and she had mentioned to me that she was like, you know, I think one thing you've always wanted to do is sort of create your own little world. And with entrepreneurship, that's really what you're doing. You're creating a world of your own. So whether you're a writer, an artist, any kind of storyteller, really, um, you're building your own little universe. And I think that's what you do with entrepreneurship. So for me, I think I first got started with a a real venture or I, I guess like a real business, um, in my first year of college, so I was 17, I was at Wilfrid Laurier University in in Canada, and I discovered this opportunity to buy a franchise, and it was College Pro Painters. And so you could get a franchise and start your own business. And the really cool thing about this, this opportunity was they actually teach you everything you need to know about how to build a business. So everything from, you know, HR and payroll to uh, taxes, how to incorporate, all of that jazz. And I think that's the kind of stuff they don't teach you in school. So that's why it was such a unique opportunity for me. Um, in particular, it it differs from sort of, I, I guess the process that one might go through just like trying to teach themselves everything while you're still kind of learning the same content, being guided in that way was extremely valuable um, and sort of set me up for what I would need to know in my next businesses. So I ran that business, uh, my first summer, um, of college. So from year one to year two, our freshman, sophomore year, and, um, it was a great opportunity. So I discovered that I was a great salesperson. I loved creating these teams, training them and owning and operating my own business. And then when I went into second year, I was like, wow, in comparison to what I just did, you know, I, I, I gotta be doing that again. Um, so in my second year, I decided to start a media company. So I started in Toronto, but quickly moved to New York and mostly started building it and conceptualizing everything. Which was there. 460, uh,
0: or was that? Uh, no,
1: that was, that was Birdcage. So Birdcage, oh, okay, Group. So we, uh, Yeah, so we aimed to create a magazine. It was a niche uh, publication for the industry, mostly covering um, the unique stories of the people that were actually behind the work. Because my belief is that, you know, even if you look at, at a, a tech, or you look at fashion, you look at music, the work product itself wouldn't exist without the people who create it. So I always thought that the stories of the people in the industry were much more fascinating, understanding why they do the things they do, what drove them to create what they created. Uh, I was always fascinated by that. And so I wanted to create a magazine for that. Um, and then, you know, after that business, it, it didn't really work out mostly because, you know, we were a bunch of 19 year olds in New York trying to publish a magazine and right before the ipad came out so once it did come out advertisers were no longer willing to kind of get experimental with niche print magazines they were sort of putting all of their their new budget towards um ipad advertising uh at least at that time for experimental budgets and so you know we had driven a lot of hype though and i think that was a really unique learning opportunity for me. through your personal brand or was
0: it like free pr how did you how are you generating that hype at the time
1: you know, I think it's just a hustle, like just going out there. You know, we had a core team of of six folks. We had over fifty contributors. I think it was just going out there and storytelling, um, telling anyone who would listen about what it is that we were building, about this idea, about what we wanted to create. And I think that was that was really what drove it. Um, so it's not so much my personal brand as as much as it was, you know, my personal hustle and going out there and just talking to as many people as possible and getting them involved. We had a lot of events, actually. So our events were really successful. We hosted them in Toronto and New York. um, all over the the place at Fashion Week. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and then from that, you know, the the founder of 460 approached me and he was like, you know, I, I saw the, the hype that you drove and, you know, how you marketed uh, Birdcage, and I would love it if you could come join 460 as our CML. So I joined and, you know, I actually took part in, Helping recreate the product. Um, at the time, it was something very different. It was more for personal use. Um, I had to rebrand it and rebuild the product so that it was more for, um, for brands. For so it was a, um, uh, a social media platform that consolidated all the brands' social media and community generated content into shoppable feeds that these, these brands could embed anywhere in a digital space. And um, so like a website, uh, anything like that. Uh, and being co-founder and CMO 460, that was a great experience. a phenomenal product. Um, after a year and a half, I decided to go back to school. Um, so actually I quit the business um, and moved back to New York. And I, I started out by just enrolling in some courses at Harvard through the extension school. So I would say I had a very non-traditional way of addressing my education. Um, I think it's like an abstract piece of art. Everybody interprets it differently um so for me, it was I was committed to learning and i and I wanted to experience sort of all these different courses um and then, after you know succeeding and getting some great grades, someone from the extension school's um academic uh advising department reached out to me and uh, noted that there was a full time degree program which I could apply for uh and so I decided to do that and got in uh three months later uh, and then started with them on campus um in in January of 2015, so that was exciting. I'd already had a couple semesters under my belt, and they transferred um, some of my credits to contribute towards my degree.
0: Did you go to Boston, uh, so or did, did you do that, it like from New York? How did that work?
1: I, I actually did it from Boston. Um, so, as part of the um, degree program, there are on-campus requirements, um, and they're they're different than just you know taking courses exclusively online. Um, so I did that, but it was great because I got the opportunity to, you know, take courses across the various schools for undergraduate credit. Um so it was great. So I was able to access graduate level courses for undergraduate credit, which I think for me was a lot more challenging. And I, I deeply enjoyed that. But it also enabled me to sort of keep doing the things that I wanted to do. Um, I was still very involved with tech. I was helping a few of my friends and their companies as um, they scale and grow. Uh, and I think to me, like staying busy constantly is just my way of life <laughs> um yeah it's just it's just my base it's just how i operate and i, I do think that educations is changing a lot and you know how really, was it at harvard i, actually, I mean I that's
0: kind of interesting because you come from a very entrepreneurial digital lens um you get you know obviously an education that's like top tier at harvard and did you feel like you you, you were able to balance stuff on the side did you feel like you know they were also receptive to what you were doing um in that kind of marketing world
1: absolutely yeah. i think I, I honestly think, um, the majority of the folks that were in the program that I was in, um, had some other job. So some of them were like, like actually like full time, like successful folks who are like entrepreneurs or, um, actors or musicians. Uh, so it was really interesting to sort of see that. Um, and some just like everyday people, like, just, you know, folks looking to continue their education. Um, I, I thought it was really unique. Uh, I'm, I'm inherently academic, so you know i I grew up with that kind of focus. you know my mom is an educator, my dad's a doctor, and um, education and that they've it, it's just sort of one of their core values um, I've always been fairly autodidactic, um, but for me, I actually deeply enjoy school um, i I found that I found that the the course options were a lot more intriguing um, through uh, the extension school and life through Harvard than you know, they may have been otherwise, um, the level of courses that I was able to take were a lot more challenging. It was just fascinating. Um, I think I'm, I'm fairly committed to the things that I do. So I spend 80% of my time focusing on my academics and about 20% focusing on my projects. Um, What would you say if if you were to look
0: back and I just want to kind of touch on this point, but, um, you know, say you're during your tenure at at, uh, at Harvard, doing kind of academics and doing stuff on the side. What was probably the biggest thing you learned from your environment? So your peers that you were saying, you know, still had successful ventures on the side. What was the biggest thing that maybe you saw as a pattern between a lot of people who were actually there in that environment?
1: Um, you know what I, I would say. My learning is in. I would say my my learning is is more broad. Um, I basically. Saw that these folks who are truly committed to education and learning will find the means to do it in the way that best fits them. Um, so we're not obligated to go get a degree. Like no one's obligated to do anything. I mean, you know, it's 2019. The gig economy is thriving. It's just like you can you can sort of address your education in your professional life in any way um, that you want today. There are options for for different personality types, for different desires, um, different aspirations. And I found that the folks that were in my program, those who are in the the full-time degree program, um, were a lot more committed to learning, and I thought that was very, very interesting. Um, I also think that they came from, um, like, they'd worked before, so I'm pretty sure that, I I could be wrong about this, but I'm I'm fairly certain that um, for the program I was in, I think you have to be above the age of 23, so in order to, to be able to transfer your credits, like, basically, you can't be eligible to go back and, and apply like to basically start an undergraduate program on campus full time through Harvard College, so I think like there's an eligibility requirement, so you're above a certain age, and as such, like the the vast experiences of the, of, of my peers at the time, it, it was just so interesting to learn from them. Um, I think they addressed their um, their academics with uh, or in a, in a completely fresh way, having been through. Um, you know, different life experiences, including like professional experiences. So even taking like American law and having some folks that are like, Oh yeah, like, like I've, I've been in this position where I've, you know, I've seen this in action. Whereas, you know, if I were to go, you know, if if I were to, if I'd finished school and done the full four years, I don't think I would have gotten the same level of education only because it would be education without life experience. Um, So going back to my education after I've, after I'd had life experience, I'd already been through three businesses and sort of, I had a better understanding of what I wanted to learn and what questions to ask that could be helpful. So I feel like I crafted my degree to be relevant to me, not only based on my personal interests, but what I think could be helpful to me in the long term. So, you know, uh, you're, you're obligated to take something called your expos. Um, So it's just like expository um, uh, uh, writing and critical reading and or expository reading and critical writing, and um, a few other courses that everyone has to take as a as a baseline. In those, I think I was able to like sharpen a lot of my core skills, both in in reading and writing. But courses like business rhetoric help you understand how to how to speak and how to write in a business setting. Um, you know, some of the ones that I was looking to take had I not left early to start Perksy um, were more like uh, organizational uh, management, organizational behavior, change management, things like that. And did the idea um, for, for Perksy so come I, like
0: I, while you were studying, was it at the end or did you have it in the back of your mind, but you really started executing it? Cause I, I know you said 2015 and I know you started Perksy like around September of 2015. So, um, were they both during the same time?
1: <laughs> yeah. So essentially I came up with a concept for Perksy over the summer. Um, as you know, cause we discussed this, um, you know, off, offline earlier, uh, I got meningitis that year, and I think that really shifted my perspective. Um, so, you know, I was like fully ready to just be back in school, finish my degree. To be honest, I was actually trying to high speed the degree, do it as quickly as possible, um, take every semester, including summer and uh, like summer school and, and winter intersession. So, just to get as many courses in as possible, because I was actually looking to do a JD, MBA. So, that's after like 460, I was like, you know, I'm ready to just go like fully focus on my academics. Um, and so I was just trying to get my undergraduate degree so I could go focus on studying for the LSATs and GMATs. And, um, it's interesting because I got meningitis, which was a near death experience. For people who don't know, I Um, I guess maybe just
0: some context there, um, so, like, what, what what kind of happened? How how did it happen? How did you recover? Because I know I watched the for the Forbes video as I mentioned, and I I know, I know you said that you kind of were on bed rest for like a month. So, uh, just so people know, it's a little bit more serious than if, if you don't really know what, what it is.
1: Yeah. So, essentially, um, meningitis um itis is any inflammation of and meninges are uh, the meninges that surround your brain. So, I had um uh meningitis um. And it, it can be caused by anything, so any virus or um, a bacteria. And what happens is your brain, for me, like my brain was swelling and the meninges around my brain were swelling. Um, and essentially, I, it just, I lost my entire memory um, for about a month and a half. It, it took some time to recover, but um, it was mostly short term. Uh, there are questions that folks ask me about that time period that I don't even remember. Um, So I still don't remember, like I would say, like the two months immediately prior to getting meningitis because it affected that part of my memory long term. Um, Sometimes it takes me like five minutes to recall a few of like the names of my professors, anyone that I had like two months prior. Uh, Yeah, so I was in, uh, I I went to the hospital first um, in Canada. So I went to Toronto General, um, then uh, went to uh, MassGen, which is a a hospital in Boston, um, and then was on bed rest for basically a month and a half. Uh, I had some time to recover and then my finals were, were pushed a bit later. So I, I was able to, to sort of work something out with the school and um, I had to recover uh, one of my courses, which was cumulative in terms of grading, meaning that I wasn't able to do enough of the labs um, to, to be able to complete that course. Whereas like my American law course, they just waited literally my entire grade on the final. Um, In a paper I had written um, like a month and a half in before getting meningitis. Uh, But because I had to make up a course, um, I took a course called Strategic Marketing Management over the summer. um, And it was a HBS course adapted for undergraduate credit. And it was in that course where we actually learned about market research and had to conduct research. We were given these Nielsen tools to use and a bunch of different market research tools. And I was like, wow, this is so outdated. Like maybe it's just like an academic setting thing. Like maybe it's just all the the school has access to. Like there's there's no way this is what brands are using. Um, And yeah, and and I I ended up uh, calling some of my my old customers from 460 and prior, being like, listen, guys, like how are you conducting research? Is this a problem you're actually facing? And they were like, yes, absolutely. Um, So for a summative project, we were asked to bring a product or service to the Cambridge area. I decided to create my own with my my group and. Um, came up with a concept of uh, something called ULAB. It consolidated all the school's clinical trials and research studies into one feed uh, within an app where students could get pre-screened, um, basically qualified for, for the study. They could register for the study in the app, add it to their calendar, and then get paid out for the, through the app once they completed the study. Um, and this was the screening process sort of, that's the idea that came to me. I think the screening part is probably one of the most important aspects of what led to Perksy because I'd learned that like some of the students were participating in these like clinical trials on weekend for on weekends for you know just like spare change like what, what they call like you know, money um and they weren't necessarily eligible for those studies um ton of hustle I was like respect your hustle uh but I was like this this might not be great for researchers so um decided to to create that and then, you know, my prof for that particular course, he was like, you know, Nadia, this is something that you could consider taking to market. It's actually a great idea. But, you know, my dad being a doctor, I know about Big Pharma. I know it's not my area of interest and it's not a place I understand. And I think someone else can address the, the clinical trial side of things. Um, that's, not, that's not my focus. I was like, But I do know marketing um, and I believe in growing where you're planted. Um, if it's an area that you know, you have the connections, you have the right resources and you could be the person to scale a company like that. That it makes sense, um, so you know I, I called those those same customers and called a lot of my friends who were at high level marketing positions at companies, and they were like Nadia, if you help us understand millennials and Gen Z, like that would be phenomenal. Like that that's a product we definitely need. So I honestly straight up just like packed my bags, showed up in San Francisco, and was like, I'm going to figure out if this is actually a thing I can build. Um, so then, and that was in August 2015, and then. Um, in September, 2015, I decided to stay, um, talk to my dad I was like, listen, I'm not going to go back to school. i you know, um, I thought he wouldn't be, wouldn't be happy about that. But this time around he was actually like, you know what, like do it. And, and I was so surprised, but it was, I think it's just because as a doctor, he was like, I understand the research, like, like area. Like I understand the need for research, even though, you know, your type of research is very different. Like I understand how important research is and that's an area like I could see this being very successful. Um, which I was very pleased by. Uh, so my parents were my first angel investors on that company, but would like to know that they didn't angel invest in the others. So, and I was, I was like, I was like, dad, why this one? Like, well, this is, this one's a really good idea. And I'm like, all right. He's like, this one's gonna work. I was like, all right.
0: Was that your tipping point? Like, when that happened, was that maybe a kind of a real metric where you're like, shit, you know, I, I really believe in this now, you know, especially having my parents backing?
1: Um, you know, I think it helps, but honestly, I'm a, I'm a fairly pragmatic person. So I'm a risk taker. I'm very passionate. I'm very optimistic. Um, but I'd like to think that I'm very pragmatic and I take a process driven approach to anything. So sometimes I can even be skeptical when it comes to a lot of businesses. I, I I think a lot of businesses are great ideas, but not necessarily scalable. And I knew that the next, any, if, if I were to have any new undertaking, I would want that to be something that I could scale to be a very large company. Um, and so, I think what really did it for me was the research. I've, I've always been a research driven person. Like, I, I think I'm almost like academic in my approach to making those kinds of decisions. So, when I moved to San Francisco, I didn't just start building Perksy right away. I spent four to five months doing research. So, as talking to as many CEOs as possible, as many uh, founders as possible, uh, folks in the market research and in, insights industry, um, basically learning.
0: So this was you gathering the, the yeah. consensus, right? Like this is you kind of doing the research. Uh, but what I'm also hearing, I think what's applicable to a lot of people listening is like your network from previous opportunities or situations or ventures were very kind of critical to the success here because you kind of rolled them over and you just kind of reached out and said, hey, listen, I have this idea. I think it would be of value. What do you think? Then they go back and tell you, listen, I think it's a great idea. Would love if you show me what what that you know it would look like and we can kind of discuss next steps.
1: Yeah, I think it's really helpful, but I also want to point out that like you don't need to have a network to do that. Like some of the um the folks that have been the most helpful to us were people that I just met for long. So, I have a very shameless approach. Um I also think, you know, I should point out that meningitis getting meningitis changed my perspective on almost everything. Um as in like I think I was always pretty daring, but I have absolutely no shame or fear in telling people now that like like, I just like asking for what I need. Like, it's like, I know this sounds super cheesy, but it's a very life is short approach. <laughs> like I was like, life is legitimately short. Like you never know when something's going to happen to you. And I never want to have to look back again and say, like, I should have done this or I, I didn't ask for the thing I needed. And that could be the make or break scenario. Like, if you think about it, if you want to ask someone for something, you already don't have that thing. So asking them and having them say no means that like, nothing's changed So, like literally
0: yeah well i'll always say it's like a 33 percent chance right because it's either a yes they don't reply or they just say no so i'm you know for me it's
1: for me it's always (laughs) like 50 50 50 /50. if they don't reply to me that's just like a no so like you've got a 50 50 chance either because like yes or no isn't based on their response it's yes or no in terms of getting what you want like you're either getting it or you're not getting it from this person so if they don't respond you're not getting it so that's a no to me um but it's like a 50 50 chance but like the chance that they say yes, like they might, like they very well might. And then you have exactly what you want. So, um, I I think that like that my perspective changed a lot. Like I, I became a lot like, I was like, I I don't want to sit around waiting to then go do something like prior to meningitis. I was of the belief that in order to go start my next big thing, like I would need to go get my JDNBA, be better versed in like the legal system. Like I honestly just think that, um, if you don't know, if you're not necessarily sure what you want to do um getting a law degree makes a lot of sense because they teach you how to think more than anything else and yeah it opens the door also, they teach you how to think and i've always been attracted to law for that reason it's also about like it problem solving and operating in in like the in-between so not hard yeses and knows but finding really creative solutions so i actually find a lot to be a lot more creative than people um give it credit for and then getting an mba just to better understand how to run a business um and then after i got meningitis i was like like what if? What if I don't have all the time in the world? Like, like I need to go do what I want to do now. Like this, like now is the time to go explore these opportunities. Um, so it really taught me to, to, to just like, don't wait, um, do it now. Uh,
0: so what was the first thing that you focused on once you, you, you know, you got to LA? You started talking to a few potential prospects or, or clients. Sorry, oh sorry, uh, San Fran. I mean, um, what was that immediate step?
1: So for me, I think the the advice that's the most transferable is I signed up for basically every single event. I went to every event, every meetup, tried to meet as many people as possible. Um, The way humans operate is we're network-driven. So we're very community-oriented. We we move in in packs. We operate in tribes. Um, So as a result, the smartest thing to do if you want to start a business is totally immerse yourself into the community and culture of the area you're looking to operate in. So I went to as many meetups as possible. Um, every single event learned all these new conferences. It was my first time going to TechCrunch, Um, so did that, uh, basically just, just really, really immersed myself. Yeah. And I think that's the most valuable because growing that community, um, helped, helped me connect to others who could be valuable to the business. So like, you know, the first engineers that helped me build my products were one that was recommended to basically someone that was recommended to me by my friend, John, who, was at PayPal at the time, and he's like, you know, I have a friend um, who he was one. He's one of the best engineers I know. He can help you get started. And of course, at that time, it was all bootstrapped. So um, that's when I started sort of building everything out. Um, I hired my first employee in November of 2016. Um, he's my first hire. Uh, he is now our SVP of product. Um, so he was a product manager. Uh, a lot of people think that's very unique. Sometimes they commend me on it. Um, I didn't strategically do it. It was more in. in intuition, I guess. I just figured I'm trying to build a product, like a, a, like an actual product. And I've never done that before. I've never been the one responsible for creating a product from scratch. And I think having a product manager who understands how to do that would be helpful, especially because I'm, I'm building a a product based technology company. Um, so did that. And then, you know, we just started growing from there. Uh, so spent about a year and a half in San Francisco. Um, another thing that I did too, was, um, I actually designed the entire app and platform myself. Um, so I, my thought at the time was that no one would want to join the company unless they could visually see what it looked like, like what product you were trying to build. Maybe that's also because I'm a very visual person and I'm a visual communicator. And I just figured, like, you know, if someone comes to me, it's, it's always helpful to see the visuals um, and so I was like, you know, if I'm to go to an engineer and tell them what I want to build, having those visuals would help. And I knew I wouldn't be able to afford a designer at that time. So I just sit down, sat down with a bunch of textbooks, um, read everything, poured over every poured over everything and just downloaded the software and taught myself how to use it. Of course, it took a lot longer than I'm sure it would a designer. Um, but was able to design the product start to finish and we still use those designs today. Um. And we actually ended up registering patents on, on our user interface and on our design. So that that's pretty cool. I, I think that's definitely a a satisfying feeling for me, um, knowing that like I I built sort of something out of out of nothing, out of not knowing how. So like I also recommend to like any aspiring entrepreneurs, if you don't have access to something, remember that you do always have the option to, to do it yourself. Um, you always have that option. I believe another thing that you know Meningrad has taught me was you know, during that time period, as I was recovering, um, I developed, uh, some, some like weird short-term personality changes, um, that, that ended up dissipating, but I developed an insane aptitude for math and physics, um, for like the three months, um, after I got meningitis or after I was recovering, like, so, you know, once I was up and running again, um, which is same My neurologist was like, yeah, that happens sometimes, but basically I'd never been as good at math and physics as I was for those three months. It was like literally insane, um, which basically taught me that we have all, like everything we need within us. Um, our brains are vast, like interconnected networks, and it's all about tapping into it and just training. Um, so I really have grown to to believe in in nurture over, over nature. Um, and so know that as an entrepreneur, if you're like, I can't do X because I don't have X, like I don't have you know, the design skills, or I don't have this skill or that skill. Yes, it's faster um, to find someone who can help you do it. But sometimes when you're starting a business, you don't always have the financial resources to do that. You always have the option to be autodidactic, learn it yourself and give it a go. Um, So that's what I did early on. um, And I think it made all the difference.
0: Do you feel that difference was what led to eventually getting that, you know, the Forbes 30 under 30. Now you're a board member with Delta Airlines on, on sort of youth council, I think. And so many things kind of came after that. Were these planned or were these uh, you know, positive consequences of your diligent focus and really, um, you know, it's need to execute now because you know what can happen if you don't.
1: So, I mean, when it comes to those things, like I was like they, they kind of came out of nowhere. Like I was like very, very flattered and I was like, wow, this is very cool. Um, especially like, you know, you're from, well, like born and raised in Toronto, you know, we don't, you just like, it's just very cool when it happens to you, you know? Um, I think those things weren't planned. Um, they just happened. And, you know, I'd like to definitely think that they are a result of the hard work that I've been, I've been sort of putting in. Um, I was like so nervous, leading up to it, like I had done a photo shoot for the Forbes 30 under 30 thing, like three months prior to getting announced, but like, they didn't confirm that I got it. And in my mind, I was just like, like, I basically didn't believe it until I physically saw myself in the magazine and was like, oh my God, wow. Like, that's like, Like, it's real. Because like the whole time I was like, what if they like realize I'm not as cool as they think I am or like something like that, you know, (laughs) like at any time. So I, you know when it happened it was it was definitely it was definitely a very cool experience, and it's made all the difference. I find that like that community has been really, really supportive, and you know the folks there are so kind and so nice and it's been really nice to be connected with other entrepreneurs who understand what you're going through because I think one hard thing about being an entrepreneur as well is you feel like you know I know like you want to talk to your best friends about anything, but sometimes like you know like um the the friends like the friends that I have. Sometimes it's hard to to talk to them about some of the things that you're going through. Like, you can, but it's usually...
0: They might not really understand what you're going through. Yeah,
1: and and sometimes they'll be really supportive. Of course, they'll be really supportive to your friends, but you can't really talk about it to the same extent. So it's really nice to have sort of a, a community of entrepreneurs. Like, yeah, a peer group. Like, I recommend that anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur, find a peer group as quickly as possible. because. It's not an easy path, especially if you're trying to grow a very large company. Like what you sign up for in order to get that sort of level of of reward and recognition in life of like building a huge business is like a lot of sacrifice, a lot of personal sacrifices. Um, You know, it's an emotional roller coaster. You have to have a lot of intestinal fortitude. Um, I think my personality type kind of thrives in chaos, and um, I don't respond. Like I'm, I'm just not. I think, like, my fear level is different. Like, I'm not easily afraid. Yeah, I'm just, like, I have a very high tolerance for those kinds of things that, that some folks, you know, might not be able to talk about. And I think, like, even with my parents, like, there's some things that... I used to tell them absolutely everything, and I still talk to them a lot. And, you know, we have a great relationship. We're very close. But there's some things that I just can't tell them because I know, like, they would stress out. Like, they would become anxious on my behalf. And, you know, I am just be on their tolerance. So, you know, being... But, like... In order to experience those things, having folks to talk to is so 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 important um, because you are going to need it. It doesn't matter how tolerant you are; just having people um, to be able to to kind of uplift you when you need it is so important. I actually think it's more important to have folks who can uplift you. Like I've heard, I've heard that I've heard entrepreneurs say, "Oh, the most important thing is to have people around you who really like, challenge you and also like constantly keep you in check." While that's true, I also think that you know a, a common theme um within you know for entrepreneurs is there's a personality trait where often you're type a perfectionist like i'm very hard on myself and i am constantly i'm applying a very high like standard of scrutiny to everything that i do so i think i already have that and what i need more than anything else is folks around me who can actually reel me in and say like hey you're doing a great job like you don't need to overwork yourself you don't need to do x y and z I think I've gotten a lot of that from the team that I've chosen. Um, I have a really amazing team. Um, They're all um, like incredible humans, very supportive, talented, smart. I I think I'm very lucky to have the team around me that I do. Um, And they're great about that. Like I went on vacation and um, it was like my first ever real vacation. And they were like, "Promise, promise us you won't work. And I was like, I promise. And then I went on Slack and they're like, Nadia, we can see you on Slack. We see the green we see the green we see that you're online get out of here, um, so they're great that way uh, I think that makes a huge huge difference like that that's made all the difference in the world for me
0: agreed and even on this topic quickly like we actually started uh, we called it a young founders dinner, but in Toronto basically like we're gathering anyone who's you know founder under under the age of thirty um, has a legitimate business either you know, went through, like, a seed round, a series A, and just kind of a peer group where you also, you feel it's kind of safe to talk about these elements, because typically as a CEO, like, you don't really want to talk about vulnerabilities all the time. You know, you're supposed to be the one pitching about the growth, the story, the optimism, and so oftentimes when things get challenging, it's like you need some, you need someone going through the same, you know, uh, window or situation so that you can kind of, uh, you know, talk to them about that. One question I had for you, though, on continuing on this is um, sort of on, on the balance scale, right? Like, curious to see how a day in life looks like for you especially now versus when you first started and and how have how have you sort of got to that balance scale for you in in your personal life having managed uh going on vacation recently do you feel like you're at a better point now
1: you know i think that's a tough question to answer because i want to give you an honest answer and i want to say no um the reason is because like you know i think the vacation i did because it was absolutely necessary almost because i had less time with myself um, I found that, um, you know, early on in the days of building, um, there's less to focus on because you have less people. So you don't need to constantly be thinking about hiring, um, it, thinking about HR, um, managing a bunch of folks. Like, you know, even when it was like three of us, like myself, my VPN, VP product, um, when we were just like building the product before we had launched it, um, even at that point, like you know, I think the the roles were very clear, and there there were less categories we needed to focus on and less tasks. So the project, like the project, was just like get the get the product out to market. It wasn't like get press around this or, um, you know, do this podcast or this press, um, or you know, fly for this client. Like obviously, we didn't have as robust of a client list then because we hadn't launched yet. Um, so I think it was like my days were a lot more clear cut. Like I could focus on on. Very, very, you know, like core things that would um, that pertain to like product and like the business at a macro level. Whereas now, I think there are a lot of micro decisions. I think the hardest part about this phase, especially you know, seed transitioning towards a Series A, like that that phase is tough because, um, you know, after you raise like your first big chunk of capital, which we did with our last seed round um, last December. Um, we raised a $4 million round led by Bain Capital. Um, and so, no, sorry, $4 million. So we raised a $4 million seed round led by Bain Capital um, with Tori, Kalini, Gingerbread, um, MDC, and our Founder Collective. And, yeah, it was phenomenal investors. Um, it was a great round. And it was just what we needed, the right injection of capital to hire the right folks to focus on, like, the right product and marketing initiatives. But, like, as such, that also means that, like, you know, it's not just the core product anymore. Now there are different, um, different product innovations that we're working on. Um, you know, we've grown our business quite a bit. We have a ton of new clients, like we added 20 new customers just last quarter alone. Um, and as a result, it means that, you know, I I think the more challenging thing is, um, that the CEO has to focus on building out the team at this stage. And, you know, I'm always hungry to get my hands dirty and, and be out there, you know, doing the work and, and being the one selling and, and being involved in the marketing activities. And I think, you know, this is the phase where you learn that you can't be involved in everything. And you have to really be, um, you know, be like, uh, like ruthless with your time and, and prioritize accordingly and understand like where are you most needed, where are you most effective? Um, I also spent a lot of time trying to um, analyze like where in the company do we have gaps and what can, like, where can can we hire for those gaps? Um, You know, where do I need to be focusing my time? So,
0: well, you're also accountable to investors now, to yes. you know, to the board, to advisors. Like, you also have to be on that helm and be very kind of diligent with that. So, you know, getting or growing the team to help you in delegating the other tasks that you would have otherwise done previously yeah. is, is like extremely important now, right?
1: Yep, I would say though that um, I've always sort of had that in the back of my mind. So, I think the advantage of having my parents as angel investors, um, they in, they invested, you know, a, a pretty good chunk for just like a normal, you know, family. Um, you know, it, you know, it's not like they have a ton of money to invest. They're not going around and in, investing like it, just like a, a regular family, which it, it was a big commitment for them. Um, and like, in my mind, this is my parents' retirement money. Um, and I think like, I think it's good to have something like that in the back of your mind constantly, because I it always drives me like what, like there are like, I have a lot of drivers and a lot of motivators, um, but I have a very strong relationship with my family and family is a very important value to me. Um, I, I love my parents very much and, you know, they've, they've raised me to be the person I am today. And um, I care very deeply about like doing, doing right by them and making sure that I can, I can like really give back in a meaningful way. And so like sometimes when I'm stressed or like when I'm frustrated or when I'm tired, I just think about, you know, what it is that I'm working for. And I, I, I think having accountability in some way, shape or form is so important as an entrepreneur, whether that's to your investors, whether it's to, you know, your angel investors, who are typically people that, you know, you have a relationship with, you care about, they care about you. Um, You know, I I think in in many cases, you know, whatever it is, um, it it has to be something that's completely unchangeable. Um, I know that this is a very weird example. I'm about to give a very strange example of how to compare it. Um, I'm literally going to use a Harry Potter reference, um, which makes me like biggest millennial ever. But basically in the third book slash third film, for those of you who have read or watched either, um, when Harry Potter is trying to come up with a, like a happy memory for his, um, like his patroness charm, basically to like fend off the Dementors, he has to think of a happy memory. And so he thinks of one, and um, Professor Lupin is like, that's not a happy enough memory. And Harry ends up using a neutral memory. So the concept is that the neutral memory is actually one that will help you more than a happy one. Um, and that's kind of like how I think about it in terms of building the business. A commitment to solving a problem for the industry is something that I have. Um, but something like giving back to my parents is something that's quite unchangeable, that whatever shifts. Marketplace, like you know, if there's some vertical in- innovation tomorrow that changes the way we have to do business, it would enable me to pivot. Um, let's say, like you know, it, this is like deeply unlikely in an industry like the one I'm in, but for some entrepreneurs, like you know, if the business problem you're solving like goes away or shifts in some way, shape, or form, building a business or having your only driver be a commitment to solving that problem in this particular way um, will make it very hard to pivot. But if your commitment is to something. Beyond that, like you have a secondary driver, a secondary motivator, it makes it a lot easier to pivot when when you need to um, and stay grounded. So, uh, you know, it's a a strange way of looking at things, but I feel like making sure that you have that uh, helps you stay accountable to multiple motivators, multiple drivers, and multiple goals.
0: Gotcha. No, that's great. I appreciate that insight. One of the questions I have for you, I guess, and then uh, I have maybe two more, but uh, on this one I'm kind of curious like having accomplished a lot especially at a young age what are you kind of looking forward to next like is there something and we're talking about drivers, motivators these are things maybe you're wise um, is there something on the career side that you still or maybe on the academic side that you're really kind of pushing for?
1: Um, honestly the way that I see it is like um, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing right now and I am exactly I think where I need to be um, in terms of my journey so my commitment to like, I, am a voracious like learner to, to me, as long as I'm constantly learning um, and like the rate of learning is very accelerated. I'm very happy. Uh, I like building things. I like solving problems and I like learning. And I feel like I get all, all three of those things like in abundance here at Perksy. So for me, I just want to keep doing more of this. Um, My next goal is really like a scale factor. So I also think that like, for me, Um, I really want to build a big business, not because of, not necessarily because of like the financial implications of of, like what it means to build a big business, but more so like, like what that achievement means. So like, it's a hard thing to do to grow a business over a billion dollars in value. And like, that's something I really want to do because of the challenge. So I think that like, as long as I'm continuously moving towards that and working towards that, In like, at an accelerated rate, I'm very happy. Um, I do want to continue solving problems for this industry. Sometimes, like, what I want to do is a lot further along than, like, what we can do just because of, like, the nature of my personality. Like, I'm always looking towards what's next. Um, And, like, our goal is to be the Adobe suite of market research products. So, of course, like, I'm always trying to find new avenues that we can explore to solve the business problems that we're solving um, in the area that we operate in. Um, I think that's what I'm most excited about. Like, like what else can we build? What can we do next? Um, how can we keep growing? Like, it's it's genuinely exciting. Like if you think about it, like it's a lot of fun to be just like building this. Like it's hard. Yes. But like very sad. It's all. Yeah. Like, it, but it's also the problem solving aspect of it. Like the fact that you have to sit down, like to me, I literally get excited by sitting down and like building a hiring roadmap and like having to come up with like the perfect formula for okay, how much business do we need in order to support this many account managers? Um, You know, like how many folks would we need um, on a marketing side? What different areas do we have to explore in order to bring in a certain amount of business? Like it's all kind of like this like interconnected um, like map. And I I find that very fascinating. And I think that goes back to, you know, what my mom said about me, which is she's like, you like to create these little worlds. Um, And that's how I see it. Like I'm kind of building my own. Like micro universe.
0: That's really cool. That's really cool. For for, for entrepreneurs not yet in, in their, say, mid-20s, 30s, they're looking to start. I know you shared a ton of lessons. This was honestly, like, even kind of going through it myself, I'm like, damn, like, I'm really um, sort of taking notes on, on just your, your process, your way of thinking. But what, what advice would you give someone who's either looking to start or either in a venture right now and uh, aspiring to become a successful entrepreneur?
1: Honestly, the first thing that I would say, um, which maybe atypical advice is, or I don't know, but um, I think this is this is one that I asked myself early on. Um, you can come up with a great idea. What's more important is making sure that, well, like obviously, like as part of the business process, like making sure that there's market demand, um, that the size of the opportunity aligns with like the size of business that you're trying to build. Um, because like not everyone needs to build a like a billion dollar company. I think there's a lot of like pressure in the entrepreneurial community and in the tech community that everyone needs to build a unicorn. And I disagree with that. If you want to build a company that generates $10 million a year in revenue, and that's it, like by all means, you should do that. If that's what you're looking for, just like, understand that like you may not raise venture capital because that might not be what aligns with those kinds of like those investors and their interests. um, and what they need to like, what they need to return back to LPs. Um, But I think it's like, understand the type of business you want to create, but also like really, really think about whether or not you're the person to, to build this, that particular business. That's what I did. Like I sat down and I was like, am I the right person to build this business or would someone else be better at it? And I thought like with this one, I I was just like, I feel like it's perfect for me. Like it's all of my personal interests. It aligns with like the network I currently have, um, the resources that are available to me, um, something that I would want to do long-term, like I, I know how to do this. And it, anything that I don't know how to do, I have access to to folks who, who know how to do it. So I think that's a really important question. Um, sometimes I find folks like, because they're inherent entrepreneurs, which I think is very true, like, you know, some people are just entrepreneurial at heart. Um, don't start something just to start something, unless you're doing it as an experiment, which is kind of like, like, I feel like my second business, Birdcage, was more of like a, let's learn how to build a business. Um, and I was at a young enough age where, you know, it didn't require a lot of capital. Um, I had the flexibility of like, you know, you know, being able to sleep, at, sleep on couches or, or live at home, you know, I was 19 at the time. Um, so it was, it was a learning experience. But, you know, when it comes to growing something big, I, I think if you are very, adamant about building a big business and you have the industry problem, like really sit down and think it through, do your research first, because it will make all the difference in the world. I don't agree with Mark Zuckerberg's like premise of moving fast and breaking things. Um, I don't think that you should break things. I think that you should, of course, try to move quickly as quick as you can, but understand that like, depending on the case, like at least in mine, Um, When you're selling to enterprise, you basically have one opportunity to show up and deliver and you best be ready to deliver. Um, So what you say your product can do, it better be able to do that because that's your only opportunity. So show up ready. And that's why we took like almost two years um, to build our business before actually bringing it to market.
0: Love it. Love it. Well, thanks so much, Nadia. I really appreciate those insights. Um, You know, super excited that we actually finally did this and uh, hopefully we get to meet sometime in, in Toronto or, or New York for that matter. But uh, I do want to make sure people can either follow up, ask questions if they can connect which social platforms would you be most active, um, with right now?
1: So in terms of communicating with me, I'm honestly the best at like Twitter. If people at me or DM me, I will definitely, I'm really good at Twitter. Um, I have an Instagram. Um, I, I'm not great at like DMS on Instagram. Um, but I do post some stuff occasionally. Uh, my handle is the same across all social networks, which is at Nadia Jen Massery. So N-A-D-I-A-D-E-N-M-A-S-R-I. Um, on LinkedIn, I, I pretty much, I, I'm not great at that either. I think I have like a thousand LinkedIn requests. I should definitely go through those <laughs> um, and, and just, go, just like accept. Um, but also, you know, definitely anyone who has questions, like download the app, um, in the app store, you know, we're in the Canadian and the U.S. app store. Um, give it a feel. I'd also love to hear people's feedback. So, like, we're all about that. So, one thing that I'm always open to, and a great way to start a conversation with me, is to come with, you know, some form of feedback. Um, I really value that. Um, I'm happy to, you know, always do an exchange. If people are looking for help, I, I love working with with folks and. I think it's a, a great way to start a conversation with me. I definitely would respond if it's feedback-driven, um, whether positive or um, constructive, either one. Um, yeah, so download Perksy in the App Store for sure.
0: Sweet, sweet. Thanks a lot, Nadia, and uh, appreciate it again.
1: Thanks so much, George. Um, great chatting with you.